Show number 39. Steve Denning talked about the knowledge-based organization and using stories to embody and transfer knowledge. We discussed at length how storytelling is a very useful skill in corporate and business life. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to another episode of The Art of Storytelling with Children. I am so thrilled that you have come here with us tonight. I can tell you I'm just I'm just dancing on the rooftops once again because basically because I have on the phone with me tonight Steve Denning and Steve Denning is is well, he's somebody who actually uses storytelling in the business world and they love him for it. <laughs> and that's just I, wow, <laughs> just wow. Um, so I just, I just want to tell you that if if you've come here because you want to be in a place where we see the found the place. I mean, you have so much found the promised land here, <laughs> because here in this place is where we hold storytelling sacred. Well, at least really important, <laughs> and we hold it up and we try to figure out the best way to use it in every possible light. And and my particular passion, of course, is storytelling with kids. Now, I know that a few people out there are probably going, now, wait a minute, Steve Dennings does storytelling with businesses. How does that relate to children? Well, of course it relates to children. When we go into schools and we say to a school, hire us as a storyteller, we're going to be the example for the kids of this generation. And they say, oh, that's nice, storytelling's from the past past generation. It's it's from the last century. We say, now, hold on a minute. Have you ever heard of this guy, Steve Dennings? Let me tell you a little bit about him. Extraordinary is the author of acclaimed books, The Secret Language of Leadership, The Leader's Guide to Storytelling, How Narrative Storytelling Are Transforming 21st Century Management, Squirrel Incorporated, and of course, the most famous, the most recent, The Secret Language of Leadership, How Leaders Inspire Action Through Narrative, which just won first place um, in the 800 CEO Read Competition as the best book on leadership in 2007. And that just happened today, uh, Tuesday, January 15, 2008. From 1996 to 2000, Steve was the Program Director of Knowledge Management at the World Bank, where he spearheaded the Organizational Knowledge Sharing Program. In November 2000, Steve Denning was selected as one of the world's 10 most admired knowledge leaders. His clients included scores of Fortune 500 companies, Steve's website, which has a collection of materials on knowledge sharing and storytelling, may be found at www.stevedenning.com. Steve was born and educated in Sydney, Australia, and uh, learned to practice law there. Uh, Steve is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. That's what I want to be. I want to be a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. He has published a novel and a volume of poetry. I'm so grateful and glad that you could come on our little show here today, Steve. I'm delighted to be here. So what's a story you think we should know about? What do you think is important? 
the most important story is not any story that I bring. My story is just a scaffolding. My story is just a catalyst. My story is just a starting point. The most important story. So it's actually something closer to home than you were probably expecting with this uh, question. That This is your story. That's the most important story. The story that you think, that you imagine, that you dream, that you invent, that you create, that's what sparked action. That's the most important story. Tell us the, the adventure you went through to learn the value of storytelling in business. Well, I'm the least likely person to get involved in this because I'm a, a quintessential left-brain analytic person. I mean, my whole life was based on that. I mean, I studied law. I was an analytic lawyer, I, uh, and um, I joined an organization like the World Bank. And, of course, they, they value left-brain analytics uh, through being an analytic person. I'm not a storyteller at all. Um, uh, but in the mid-1990s, I found myself in a situation where I was trying to persuade this very difficult change-resistant organization to do something radically different, to go from being a lending organization to sharing their knowledge, a big strategic shift. And I was in this situation in the World Bank where I was um, trying to persuade this organization to change, and no one was listening. I gave them reasons. Uh, people just didn't listen. I showed them charts. They looked dazed. And uh, one day I stumbled on a story. I stumbled on a, a very simple uh, story going to be like well I said it's going to be like today let me tell you about something that happened just a few months ago in June 1995 and this was still in early 1996 in June 1995 a health worker in a little village in Zambia in Africa logged on to the website for the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta Georgia and got the answer to a question on how to treat malaria now that was June 1995 not June 2015 it wasn't the capital of Zambia it was a little village 600 kilometers away. And this is not a rich country. This is Zambia, one of the poorest countries in the world. But you know the most important part of that picture for us in the World Bank? The World Bank is not in that picture. The World Bank does not have its knowledge organized to share with all the millions of people who make decisions about poverty. But just imagine if it was. Just imagine if we got organized. Think what an organization we could become. And that simple story, to my amazement, connected. It, it engaged people. They, they started to imagine... Well, why not? Why don't we do this ourselves? We have knowledge. We could have a website. We could share our knowledge. And so this led the staff and managers, and then the president of the World Bank heard about it, and he said, right, let's do it. And so I became the director of knowledge management, and I found over the next four years that uh, when I didn't tell a story, everything was turmoil and confusion. When I did tell a story, suddenly <laughs> people would be moving into the future. And so not being totally unobservant, I kept telling stories. And so um, I... Um, World Bank was eventually benchmarked as a world leader in knowledge management. People were asking me, well, what on earth are you doing? Why, why is this snail-paced organization suddenly jerking into action? And I had to admit it was this very ancient art being used for a very modern purpose of uh, com connecting with people and communicating a complex idea and sparking action. And the key to it is not my story. The Zambia story is just scaffolding. It's the story that the listener imagines, the listener dreams. And that is the most important story, to spark a new story in the mind of the listener. So that's how I discovered it. And I thought this was very counterintuitive and uh, uh, almost uh, something unbelievable. But um, as I kept doing it and doing it more and more in many different organizations, it, it was in, kind of incontrovertible. It was working. And so I've written a number of books and 
and develop further ideas on how it works and why it works and where it works and what you have to do to make it work. Now, in this early process, you actually went to the International Storytelling Center? Right. I uh, uh, I mean, I'd been doing this for for a bit, uh, I mean, a couple of years, and, and suddenly thinking, this, this is actually working. I mean, uh, I better find out, I better listen to the experts. I mean, I'm an amateur, I'm just sort of learning by doing, let me, why don't I go and talk to the experts? So I went to uh, the Jonesboro uh, Storytelling, International Storytelling Center in, in Jonesboro, Tennessee, where you have all these professional storytellers. And um, and so I told them my stories. I told them the Zambia story, a few other stories, and asked them uh, what did they think about it. And they told me, Steve, you don't know a thing about storytelling. You're not, those aren't stories. Those are, those are pathetic feeble things. They're not even stories at all. I mean, you don't know the first thing about storytelling. You must give us the sights and the sounds and the smells of what it was like in the environment. That's what a story is. You have to start from scratch, throw out everything you're doing and start again. And uh, (laughs) I was a bit shocked, but um, I I thought about it a bit and realized, well, actually, if I were to do what you were to say and to describe the sights and the sounds and the smells of what was happening in Zambia, I would lose my audience. My audience has the attention span of a fly, <laughs> and I need to connect with them in seconds. And what's more, if I give them all the sights and the sounds and the smells of what it was like in Zambia, as soon as I tell them, look, that health worker in Zambia, that's a nurse, and she has 10 uh, children, and she's living in grinding poverty, and she gets beaten up by her partner every night, you might actually get interested in that health worker in Zambia. And for my purposes, I'm not really wanting you to get interested in that health worker in Zambia. I'm wanting you to think about sharing knowledge. I'm wanting you to think about what the World Bank could be like or what you could be like if you could start sharing your knowledge. So the more I tell you about that health worker in Zambia, the less likely I am to be actually communicating the idea. So this was one of my most important discoveries, that the well-told story is often the enemy of effective business storytelling. A, a story that's been shared of all its its details is, can be much more effective than a, what in the storytelling world would be known as a well-told story with the sights and sounds and smells and the plot and the turning point and the, the resolution. All of those things, they can get in the way, in a sense, in a business setting of communicating a complex idea and sparking action. Because when you have a minimalist story, you're leaving plenty of space in the mind of the listener to create this new story. So you almost deliberately leaving that space. You're deliberately refraining from telling a well-told story in order that the listener can create the most important story, which is their own story. I'm just, it's so clear that you see this value in in storytelling, in, yeah. in how you're using it. And could you talk a little bit more about how storytelling has value in a business setting and the purpose it serves, or purposes it can be attached to? Well, in, uh, it's uh, kind of interesting because when I um, I left the World Bank, I'd been director of knowledge management in the year 2000, I uh, left the World Bank, and I thought, well, I'm director of knowledge management. People would want to talk to me about knowledge management, big corporate program kind of thing. And uh, it turned out the opposite. People were much more interested in talking to me about storytelling. And why was that? Well, what I found was that all organizations around the world are grappling with rapid and pervasive change for a whole set of reasons. Global comp- uh, 
um, need to innovate. Um, the, um, it's just a, a radically shifting work environment. Almost all organizations, all managers, all leaders are faced with trying to communicate to people why things are going to look very different tomorrow from what they looked like yesterday and trying to inspire enthusiasm into a workforce uh, about these new ways of doing things. And what they're finding, of course, is that the traditional way of communicating with uh, uh, workers and with partners and clients is doesn't work. You give people instructions. Basically, uh, they look at it as autocracy, as tyranny. Uh, if you give them reasons, it, it, it backfires. And so you have a whole army of frustrated managers out there realizing that things that work pretty well in the stable world of the 20th century are not working in the 21st century. They have to be able to inspire enthusiasm for change in the workers. And so they are starting to be ready to look at alternatives. And so that's where narrative comes in. That's where the narrative, of course, is tremendously well adapted to exactly this challenge. This is how, in fact, you can communicate uh, enthusiasm for uh, different ideas, doing things differently in the future. So it's it's probably around the world, and storytelling narrative is, is right at the center of it. So what I hear you saying very clearly is that storytelling is one of the most important skills you can have in business today. Is that true? That's what I'm saying. But it's a certain kind of storytelling. It's uh it's a storytelling adapted for business, a business narrative. It's, it's not, in a sense, the, um, the epic story, the 40-minute the um, entertainment story. These are anecdotes, uh, very minimalist stories, which are crafted uh, specifically for the setting. And so not only to action. In fact, most stories don't lead to action. You think about the vast universe of stories. Most of those stories do not lead to action. The stories that are useful in business and organizations are stories that lead to action. And so one is looking at this tiny sliver of all those stories and understanding the characteristics of a story that this is how you put them in our audience for, for change. Help us to see the difference between the two different categories of, of stories that inspire for action and stories that don't inspire us. How do we identify those stories for when we need to tell them? Well, uh, if you're trying to entertain people after dinner speech or um, uh, Hamlet, I mean, do people rush out into action after watching Hamlet? I mean, it's, <laughs> we don't rush out. Most people don't rush out into action. They think they, eventually it may lead to something, but it it doesn't lead to action. The stories that lead to action have a couple of particular characteristics I've, I've found, those that have been most effective for me. Um, and uh, three main characteristics. One is, first of all, these are true stories. These are stories about things that actually happened. Go to Zambia, check it out. This actually happened. June 1995, this actually happened. And it's kind of like the truth of the story uh, is what shakes people out of their complacency. Because if I tell them an imaginary story, let me um, tell you... <laughs> What might happen if the World Bank were to start sharing its knowledge? The answer to that is typically, that's not going to happen here, Steve. You know that. World Bank, change-resistant organization, it's not going to happen. And that's the end of that conversation, unless I can say, but it did happen. And here's the very person it happened to. Go and check it out. This actually happened. 
It's the truth of the story that can actually spark people out of that. The first element is a, a story that's true. It, it can, a, a true story is very effective in dealing with today's cynical, skeptical, uh, even hostile audiences that one is typically facing in organizations today. And second characteristic is uh, it, this story has a happy ending. Is that Hollywood's right. It has to have a happy ending. No success at all with negative stories. I know a firm that went bankrupt because they did not implement knowledge management. No success with that kind of story at all. And <laughs> the reason is here is that you are uh, dealing with some rather deep neurological phenomena. And um, when if you tell that negative story, um, I mean you are really dealing with the reptilian brain. And when when you start talking about things that are uh, happening bad, uh, badly. I mean, the re- reptilian brain kicks into action and says, "Fight, flight! We've got to get out of here. We've got to do something." And they're doing think anything but uh, responding positively to the story with a happy ending. But the positive thing, then, what seems to happen is that the uh, limbic system in the brain provides what's called an endogenous opiate reward to the cortex. It injects a substance called dopamine into the Cortex puts the brain on drugs and it creates a kind of warm uh, sense of euphoria, sort of warm and floaty feeling, and perfect frame of mind when you're trying to get someone to do something different. So it has to be a story with a positive tone. So it's a true story, it's positive in tone, and the third element, which I signaled earlier, it's a minimalist story. It's a story told that's been stripped of most of the sights and the sounds and the smells and the details because you're trying to create a space in the mind of the listener where they can imagine a new story. So in uh, <clears throat> in showing people how to use storytelling in business, it's showing them how to, fo- to, I mean, to focus and to find stories that uh, reflect these characteristics. A true story, it's, it's positive in tone, it's minimalist in form, and uh, those are the kind of stories that. So, in your in your journey, as you went through the various books you were writing, um, what was the first book you wrote? I wrote the Springboard first of all, which, sorry, it was um, that was the um, the the story of my four years discovery of the story of storytelling. So it's kind of like the story of storytelling, and um, um, that was kind of like a fun book to um, really. Um, uh, teach myself what I was doing. Writing that book really helped me to understand what I was doing, and it was it was funny because when I uh, I, I showed the book to the World Bank, the managers, um, and uh, they realized for the first time time what I'd been doing. They realized for the first time that I, I'd actually been using this secret technology, the secret technology <laughs> storytelling, to communicate these complex ideas. Before then. They had no idea. Um, all they knew is that Steve is very. They had no idea that there was this whole methodology behind what I was doing, and uh, so it was only the first time they realized this was that when they read my book. And so that's one of the the attractions of this is that it flies under the corporate radar. So it's a very subversive technology. It's not something that can only be used by managers to communicate to staff and clients. This is something that staff can use to educate their managers. This is something that staff can use to change their bosses, uh, to change their clients. Or it's uh, not just something that teachers can use 
on pupils. This is something that pupils can use on teachers. Pupils <laughs> can use this to change, change the mindset of their of their teachers. So it's it's a very radical and subversive technology that we're talking about here. So that was a fun book to write, and uh, it got me started, and um, it led people to invite me to show them how to do this. And uh, so anytime I, you combine subversive and storytelling in, in the same sentence is, is very interesting. And I think I think Aesop would be very pleased. <laughs> so, you listen to the other storytelling with children. This was my binky. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a baby. That, that was a baby. That's the, but this is Priscilla Howe, and you are listening to the art of storytelling with children. Don't be fooled by that baby. Why did you write this book in a way without... The strange way. And uh, it, it was interesting because I I was talking with a publisher and uh, I was actually having trouble writing it because I was writing about people who'd been doing some rather bad things and, <laughs> and trying to stop me and block me and and uh, do what, uh, what seemed perfectly obvious and all of the politics that was going on in the organization. And I was seeing that if I were to name all these people and tell what they were doing, uh, then the book would never get published because they would be uh, strongly opposed to ever seeing it published. On the other hand, if I didn't name these names, I mean, there'd be no story. So I was kind of struggling with how to do it. And then eventually the publisher said, well, why don't you write it in the style of a funny little book called The Zen and the Art of Archery, mm. this, uh, uh, written by this crazy German professor. Uh, Herigal, and uh, it's about how he went to Japan and uh, and learnt the art of archery. And it doesn't name anyone, and it doesn't uh, give any dates. But it, it says, "I went here and I tried this; it didn't work. I went there and I tried that, and it also didn't work. And I tried something else, and oh, it started to work a little bit. So I did more of that, and and so it goes on like that throughout the whole of the book. And so no names um, and no dates and whatnot, but at the end of the at the end of that journey, you realize what it's like to learn the art of archery. And so they said, "Why don't you write a book like that?" And I said, "Well, I think that's a wonderful idea, and because I love that book, and um, I think it's a solution to the problem we're facing, and I'd be delighted to do it." But there's just one catch: uh, you, Harvard Business School Press, have never published a book like that. And my <laughs> guess is you'll never publish a book like that ever because it's not your house style. And they say, well, don't worry about that. Just write the book, and we'll see. And so I wrote the book, and I delivered it to them. And they said, well, you know, I mean, we love this book. It's exactly what we asked for. Uh, but if we give this our, to our editors, they're going to tear it apart. They're going to turn it into a Harvard <laughs> book. And so we think you should take it somewhere else, because we kind of like the book, and we'd be a huge pity it would to be turned into a Harvard book. So why don't you go somewhere else and... Uh, so I was a bit disappointed, but it was immediately picked up by someone else, and so that's how the book got written in that particular style. But it certainly helped me solve a problem in how to write a book, which was really quite negative about a whole lot of people who had tremendous power in the organization. But because they weren't named, when they read the book, they thought they told me, quote, it was a sweet book, <laughs> unquote. So they they didn't see, in a sense, what I was saying, they couldn't read between the lines. But the the readers, of course, could immediately imagine what's going on because the the villains were there just the outside the vision of uh, out. And, 
you know, any blowback? They told me it was the that was the quote. We we think this is a sweet book. <laughs> so, so, uh, so yeah. In the latest book, the Leader's Guide to Storytelling, I actually um, um, uh, play it much more openly. In the preface, I actually I don't name names, but I I I say exactly what was going on. Now now things are much less veiled and. Um, some of those stop? people aren't working there, and other books have been written which have confirmed uh, what was happening, and uh, so now I can be a little bit more open. But it's um, why did you uh, stop working at the World Bank, Steve? Steve I mean, it, big organizations, at the top of big organizations. I mean, it's this is a this is a murky, dirty world, and uh, they've got factions. You've got factions fighting each other, and. I mean, truth and justice and light and harmony. I mean, forget all of that. This is about <laughs> life and death struggle. And uh, mm. and uh, so, there's. I mean, most business books uh, just skate over this. So I'm I'm uh, revealing some of the kinds so, of things. So you're wait, wait, you're saying that you worked in one of one of the dark and dirty corners of the business world, and you use storytelling as an effective tactic to win your battle. Right. Okay. Right, and Great. that's what I've been writing about since, about other people who using the same tactics to win those battles in those same, these are, the battlefields are not pretty places. And, uh, yeah, this, this is how you win battles. And what, what I've also seen is that that's how most battles are won. The battles are won by the people who are most passionate, who can connect and engage with their audience. I mean, you have to have figures and statistics and analysis and data in the background, but... In the end, it's the story that grabs people, and it's the passion with which that story is delivered. That's what wins the day. That's what wins the battle. And the story has to be simple, and it has to be short, and it has to be to the point. And true. And true. So what's the book about? I haven't got a chance to read it yet. Squirrels Incorporated. Um, what's that story about? <laughs> uh, that was a fun book because I was, um, um, I'd written a springboard, and um, so I was talking with an agent. And uh, they, I'd sent them some uh, drafts for a new book, and it was kind of abstract textbook kind of thing. And they said, well, I thought you were a storyteller. Why don't you tell a story? Why don't you use a story to communicate the story? And uh, Who Moved My Cheese has obviously sold quite a few books, so why don't you write something like that? So I thought, well, yeah, that's an interesting idea. So I um, um, had been thinking about squirrels for a long time because in Washington, D.C. is kind of like the world capital of squirrels. And uh, all over our garden, I mean, they're just all over the place, running everywhere, uh, having a ball. I mean, the trees, it's just a wonderful place for squirrels. And uh, and so I look out of the garden every day, there are the squirrels. So I thought, well, why don't I write a table about squirrels? And I'd, I'd seen this uh, insight in um, Harper's uh, magazine uh, some years back, where they pointed out that squirrels lose uh, 50% of the nuts and acorns that they bury, bury because they can't remember where they bury them. <laughs> and uh, I thought, this is kind of a crazy thing here. They are burying all these nuts and acorns and losing them. Why don't I write a story about a squirrel that wakes up one day and says, why don't we store our nuts and acorns instead of burying them? Then we could save 50% of the nuts and acorns. And so the the book is about a squirrel, young female squirrel, who tries to persuade her 
squirrel organization, why don't we store our nuts and acorns instead of burying them? And uh, all the, the perils and problems that she runs into trying to change a <laughs> big organization and how she uses storytelling to try to deal with those uh, those challenges. And uh, did, did you know I, that I wrote a couple of chapters and I sent it to the agent, and uh, she wrote back to me and said, "I hate squirrels." With the agent, <laughs> my re- end of my relationship with the agent. But um, the book got published and was done very well. And uh, that's probably the simplest uh, and most accessible of my books. Um, I mean, according to Amazon analysis, uh, it's suitable for someone in seventh grade. And uh, it's uh, written in a very simple style and, and shows that this is the elements of this are actually very accessible and simple and understandable and shows you in, in, uh, in hopefully an entertaining way what, what this whole movement's about. Did you know that um, gray squirrels bury their nuts and red squirrels store them? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just so you know. Okay. I teach, I teach survival skills to kids, so I know all these things about animals and unrelated. Okay. Um, so storytelling, I just can't get over this enough. I can't point this out enough because I've had so many teachers and principals who don't really get how storytelling is so essential for life. So I, I keep harping on this point. It's because I'm just, um, I'm just amazed. Yep. So storytelling is is a key weapon in the arsenal of working um, in management or even working under management in terms of working in sales. Uh, and, and in your experience, it was, a, it was an unrecognized weapon. It was something that you could use, and the people you're using it on weren't even aware of it. They weren't even aware of it. They weren't aware I was telling stories. They were just, this is, this is fresher. This is more engaging. This is more interesting. Uh, it, it flies under the radar, and that's that's one of the charms. That's what makes it so powerful because it's uh, it 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 doesn't come on like some big strange. Uh, uh, we're going to introduce SAP into our organization, or we're going to introduce uh, zero cost budgeting or something. I mean, this just sounds like someone talking, but talking more engagingly and more compellingly than you've ever heard before, and more refreshingly and entertainingly, and. So yeah, it's um, uh, and uh, this was probably one of the reasons why, for so many decades, I'd never discovered it. I never, it was staring me in the face, and and yet I didn't didn't recognize the power of it. It was, um, it was really by accident that I I stumbled on it. So it's it's this very sort of unobtrusiveness which is uh, gives it some of its power, but also makes it difficult to find because people don't recognize it when they see it. So why did you leave the World Bank? I mean, well, my job was done. I, I mean, I uh, had um, set out to uh, persuade the organization to uh, complement its its uh, transfer of financial resources, lending money with making knowledge sharing, sharing their knowledge with the world as at least as important as money, and that by the year 2000 had been accomplished it had been put in the mission statement of the organization uh, knowledge sharing was um, something equivalent to transfer of money it was in the budget it was in the organization chart it was in the personnel system it was in the the metrics of the organization it was in the processes uh, and so in, in 
I mean, the job of leadership in terms of persuading the organization to do this, approach the whole world differently, I mean, that that was done. I mean, the DNA of the organization was changed, and even today it's, uh, it's really unchallenged. I mean, you can have arguments about how we should do this, but essentially one. And I was being pressed uh, by uh, many organizations to uh, come and talk to them, and that was part of my job, to communicate what the World Bank was doing. And so I was but, talking outside know, the organization a lot, and the World Bank was seeing less and less of me. So I said, look, why don't we rationalize this? I'll leave the organization. When you have a problem, call me back. I'll come and help you, but I will spend more and more of my time helping other organizations. So that's well, let's, let's go on. I want to make sure we talk about your book. And I know there's a number of people on the line who are going to want to ask you questions. Let's go on to your most recent book, The Secret Language of Leadership. Uh, so in a nutshell, for the, all those people online who who haven't read the book yet, uh, what's the what's the secret? Well, <laughs> I mean, story is a big part of it, but only a part. And and what I'm saying is that story is central to the the main phases in which leaders connect. And when I say leaders, I'm talking about anyone who's trying to change the world, not someone in necessarily in a hierarchical position, but anyone whether you're a student or an employee or a boss or a partner or a, a seller or a, a consumer, wherever you are, if you're trying to change the world, this is how you go about it. And first, of, there are th- three parts to it. One is really, first of all, you have to get the attention of your audience. If you haven't got their attention, uh, basically you're lost. And today's audiences are not paying attention. They are being bombarded with messages from so many different angles. Uh, they are cynical, they are skeptical, they've been uh, cheated on before. And so basically they're not listening. And so the first step is to get their attention. And typically getting attention involves telling a negative story because we something that's unexpected and negative and relevant to the audience. And so showing people that that's the kind of story that first of all gets their attention. And then once you have their attention, then you have to stimulate their desire for change even before you give them reasons because if you give them reasons um, before they want to change then they will reject the reasons out of hand a whole lot of psychological studies uh, showing the confirmation bias when we hear something that conflicts with our existing opinions we reject the source of that information not not our way of doing things so you have to be able to uh, perform a kind of judo trick of persuading people to want something different even before you've been able to give them the reasons to want something different. And that's what we're talking about with a story like the Zambia story, a springboard story, a story that can spring an audience very quickly, just in seconds, to imagine a different way of doing things and get people to want to uh, do things differently. And then once you've stimulated their desire for something, so then you're dealing with uh, stories that provide the how and the why and the what of what's going on. Because if you only stimulate desire, then that may fade. So you need to cement it in place, to bind it in place with stories that reinforce the idea of doing something different with, with reasons of how and what and why. So you have these kind of three stages in, in any kind of persuasive presentation. First of all, can, getting people's attention typically with a negative story stimulating desire with a positive story and then reinforcing with reason with typically neutral stories about the how and the what and the why 
of uh, why this makes sense. And that, in a nutshell, is what the book is about. The, a, a, it's kind of a hidden pattern in the way that uh, leaders for, for all eternity have connected with audiences and got them to want to do something different. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's always been there, but it, it's, uh, when it isn't, when you don't understand the pattern, then it, it's, it sounds like these are extraordinary people. But when you look at the, the great leaders like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or, um, or uh, say, Nelson Mandela, these are not people who had any particular uh, physical advantages or mental advantages. They, they are really, uh, in a sense, ordinary people, but they are talking in extraordinary ways. And if you can understand what is, what is different about the way that they're talking, what is the underlying pattern, then... Ordinary people can become extraordinary. Anyone, everyone in this call, we can all be extraordinary once we understand the pattern that leaders use to connect and engage and inspire enduring enthusiasm for change. I spent a lot of time on this show reminding storytellers that we have a great gift. We have a great gift to do good in the world, and, and we can take what we know in terms of storytelling and we can harness it to great deeds. Um, so I won't harp on that once again to my audience. This is Heather Forrest, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. Storytelling stays alive and well When we take a little time to listen And tell, and tell, and tell We have a lot of people on the call today, and I wanted to give the audience, the live audience on the call the opportunity to participate. Uh, so if you are interested in having a comment or a question, understanding that we only have about 15 minutes left in the call, and if you're interested in in commenting or have a question uh, for Steve, um, please push on your phone star 7. I just get a sense of how many people want to. Star 7 for a comment or a question. I see one. Hold on. Star seven. I see two, three people. Hold on. Okay, I'm going to just call out the first the the area code you're in. So um, seven oh four. Go right ahead. Hi, Steve. This is Mama Casey and Shirley. Simple, short, true to the point. What is your recommendation regarding facts and numbers and figures? Should you use a lot of that or try to keep away from that? Well, I, I'm a great believer in facts and figures, but I, what I'm suggesting is weave those facts and figures into a story. Weave those facts and figures into a narrative so that, I mean, if you simply give the facts and figures, people will forget them. But if you can find a way to embed those facts and figures in a story, then, then people will, will remember them. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm saying that particularly in the... Uh, in that third stage of a leadership communication, remember I said there are three phases. First, get attention, then stimulate desire, and then reinforce with reason. That third phase, reinforcing with reason, that's the phase where the facts and the figures need to come in. And if they come in as facts and figures, that's kind of okay. But the prob- problem is people will forget them. If you can find a way to weave those facts and figures into a story, then the, the facts and figures become memorable, and then they will they will stay in place. So um, so use them, but to the extent possible, weave them into 
weave them into stories. Okay, thank you. And Buck, you go ahead. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Hey, Buck. Uh, uh, hey, Steve, how you doing? Good. Uh, first of all, let me just say that uh, I, I want to ask you about how you feel about, uh, you know, human actions can be modified by a story. Right. You know, but how do you feel about uh, changing character or human nature by a story? Uh, you got anything about that for kids? And is that the well, I um, get all in your in your corporate work. Well, I, I think I mean changing someone's character is is not something that's going to happen with telling one story any more than changing a big organization is going to happen with one story. I mean, this is a long term activity, and. And particularly with kids, I think um, the uh, I mean kids are very observant, of course, with what's going on around them and what their parents, and they're very observant with the actions of their parents. And so, I mean, if you are trying to change the character of your of your kids, um, then it, it's crucial, of course, that your actions as an adult are are consistent with the values that you're communicating and. The stories uh, that you will need to inspire people to become a different kind of person, they will need to be stories that resonate with your audience. So understanding uh, your audience, understanding those kids, understanding their world, understanding what's going on in their world, understanding what their values and their hopes and their dreams are and who they admire, that's going to be key to be able to craft a story that might resonate with them and you, you might uh, particularly with kids you might even find that you might not be the best storyteller there might be other people um, in the environment who are more persuasive who are more uh, convincing they might be the people who will need to be uh, telling the stories so you in, in changing characters I say is a multi-year undertaking and you need to create a context an environment where the Kids are observing actions of the people around them and the stories that are being told that inspire them to become a different kind of person. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it uh, guarantees success, but I'd say without compatible with the, the character change that you're aiming at and without stories that inspire the listener to want to become that different kind of people, then it's not going to happen. So, so you can actually change a uh, company's culture, and you could change a person's character by finding those resonating stories and then repeating them over and over until everyone knows them by heart and, and lives by them by heart, and so to speak. I'm saying it's possible. I'm not saying it's guaranteed. I'm saying this is one of the most difficult oh, I, 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 I um, But I've seen it happen in organizations. Yeah, I've seen it happen with children. And, but it's, it's certainly a multi-year undertaking, and it takes a tremendous amount of patience and persistence and skill. Uh, to make it happen. Hey Buck, Thanks I'm gonna go much. on I'm gonna go on the next person, is that okay? Sure, go for it. Okay, go right ahead. Hi, this is Melinda. I was just talking about uh, the methodology that you use to get this to happen because it seems to me that you gotta have a a methodology, uh, some sort of uh, uh reasoning to do this. Right, and and that's what, you know, particularly the most recent book, The Secret Language of Leadership, is about is giving you that methodology, giving you those patterns, okay. 
giving you that underlying okay. structure, uh, which once you under- understand those patterns, then whatever the, the context you're in, you can find a story that will inspire people to want to change. What, and whatever the, the change situation is, whether you have 30 seconds or 10 minutes or 30 minutes or three hours or three years, uh, this three-segment uh, structure of getting attention, inspiring desire, stimulating desire, and reinforcing with reasons is, is uh, kind of universally appropriate. I mean, if you have only 30 seconds, you're going up the elevator with the boss of a big organization and says, what's this crap about uh, such and such? Uh, then you, deal, you only use the middle element. You, you have the simple okay. story, the springboards can, can communicate a complex idea and say, oh, okay, now I got, tell me more. But then you're out of the elevator and you're into the next part. But if you have 10 minutes, then you can uh, make sure that you, first of all, get people's attention and then stimulate desire and give them a, a, one or two reasons. If you've got 30 minutes, you can give them a lot of reasons. If you've got three hours, you can give them an enormous number of reasons. So it's kind of infinitely uh, adjustable to depending on how much time you have. But all the time thinking, do I have this person's attention? Am I stimulating desire? Am I, am I resonating with this person? Do I understand their story? Am I telling a story that's going to resonate with their world? And then, how do companies respond to this storytelling um, phenomena? I mean, do they really believe that this is going to really evoke change? Well, typically, I'm dealing with some desperate people. <laughs> they are okay. <laughs> These are not people who are saying, "Look, uh, we're." I mean, we're having great success with our change programs. Everyone is jumping on the table and shouting hallelujah when we <laughs> announce we're going to have a new reorganization. No, they're saying, look, we are being greeted with hostility, with skepticism, with cynicism. Uh, we have to find a different way. So uh, we're dealing with people who are realizing that today's audiences um, are not accepting what worked for a lot of the 20th century. So that's, that's the first point, um, that we're dealing with an audience that's already looking for something different, and we're looking something, uh, something really radical. It's 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 very urgent that they find a solution to these problems. Their future, their career, their jobs actually depend on them being successful. I give a number of examples in the book about extremely powerful executives, uh, Howell Raines at the New York Times or uh, Bob Nardelli at the Home Depot, people with tremendous, almost czar-like <laughs> power and authority. Uh, when they couldn't inspire enthusiasm in their staff and clients, they were out. They were, no matter how much power you have these days, unless you can inspire enthusiasm in the staff for the change that you're undertaking. I mean, your life expectancy in that position is not long. So these, these are people who realize that what they've been doing isn't working, and they realize that it's tremendously, tremendously urgent and important that they find a different way, a more effective way, of doing things, so they're kind of open, open to the idea, and then oh, great. Once, once we actually get into a session, um, I start to explain to them, look, uh, this is something you already know how to do, and I usually start off a workshop by 
as showing them, look, you know how to tell a story. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell a story about either uh, when you discovered what your organization is really good at or when you encountered difficulty in your work. And without preparation, tell a 60-second story. And everyone in the audience discovers that they can tell a 60-second story. This is something we do effortlessly in a social setting. So I want, as the winner of last year's swap, 30-second swap competition at the National Storytelling Conference, that was me, right? I want everyone here on the call, if you come to the National Conference next year, you've got to take me off my throne. right? Because you now understand how important it is to be able to make up a 30-second story on the spot. Hi, I'm Ann Glover, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Okay, now do I go? Okay, monkey, yeah, go ahead, your turn. Okay, hi. Um, no, wait a second. Um, wait, can we start over, because I forgot if I... No, monkey, just say hi, this is monkey. Hi, but Ann, what, they don't know me. No, but th- that's why you're introducing yourself. Hi, this is monkey. No, I'm monkey. I know, I'm just <laughs> telling you what to say. Hi, I'm monkey... And this is, you're listening to... And you're, but what if they're not listening anymore? They're listening, monkey. Just talk to them. Um, okay, you're listening to the art of storytelling, but Anne, Anne... What, monkey? You say with Brother Wolf, come on. Oh, yeah, um, but why is he called Brother Wolf? It's his name. Well, his name's Eric, but he's calling himself Brother Wolf. Why don't we just say with Eric Wolf? Well, you can say that, Monkey. Okay, hi. This is Monkey, and you're listening to Eric. No, but then they'll think I'm Eric. No, they won't, Monkey. They really won't. Okay, hi. This is Monkey. Um, and... You've got to wrap it up, Monk. Wrap what up? End. We're running out of time. Okay, hi. This is Monkey, and, um, um, you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Wolf. Eric, is that it? That's it, monkey. Well done. I'm Steve. I got two more people I want to fit in in the next five minutes. Um, So I'm going to ask Melinda to press star six. That'd be great. Um, Yeah, I just, um, with your process, I was just wondering why it's a negative story you start out with. Well, uh, there's a whole lot of psychological studies have been done that shows that negative things are more attention-getting. Uh, we, as species that, are, that is trying to survive, have been programmed to pay more attention to negative things because negative things can do us in. They can kill us and, and, uh, and finish us. So we, whereas positive things, I mean, they're wonderful, but... Um, they can wait. If we're dead, then we can't enjoy the positive things. So, I mean, you can see why we might be programmed this way, but certainly psychological, a whole lot of psychological studies show that uh, negative things are more attention-getting. And so it's things which are unexpected and relevant to us and negative, which in general are what get our attention. I'm not saying that positive things can't get our attention, but negative things are typically more uh, attention-getting. So, um, if you're dealing with today's very difficult, cynical, skeptical audiences, why not take advantage of that? Why not um, 
use but that phenomenon. But don't you think we get bombarded with negative, um, you know, the media, the news? Isn't it nice to get something positive? I mean, I don't know. I'm uh, I'm full of enthusiasm for, for positive stories, but that's the middle step. That's Once the you have people's attention, then that's when you must have a positive story. And that, that actually is the, the piece of the communications do not have this, mis, this middle step of inspiring enthusiasm with a positive story. So I'm, the, the trick is to get people's attention. Right. And once, if you have their attention, then you can skip that step. But uh, do it with great uh, care because typically today's audience is not paying attention. And, but once you have their attention, then you, that's when you need the positive. That's when you need to inspire them. And that's uh, in workshops, that's really the most difficult and the most important step and what we put most of the most of the focus on because that's crafting that story that can inspire people to want something different even before they understand the reasons for it. It's kind of a judo trick. and so that's Right, but that's, it could be maybe something not extremely negative. It could be something just to prove a point. Well, uh, uh, I mean... I guess. It's, yeah, I see what you're whether saying. Whether it's very negative or... I mean, if, it, if it's too negative, it's, if it's too traumatic, then it may be distracting. Right. Um, but, but I am saying, until you in the breeze, you must get their attention. And so finding a way to get their attention and using negative stories to the extent that they work. But uh, I'm, I'm for what works. I'm, I'm not right. laying down uh, irrevocable principles. I'm saying, look, we, we have all these psychological studies showing that negatives... Uh, more attention getting. Why not? Why not take advantage? Why not use that? Why not take advantage of that? Um, so oh, I'm going to go now to Larry. Tom, I'm going to go to Larry first because he was sure. online. Steve, uh, people who uh, work in education with a bent towards storytelling, uh, I, I think it would be fair to say want it to be more open, creative, innovative, etc. And as opposed to kill and drill testing kind of approaches. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about uh, a, a uh, organizational kind of story that uh, might, you know, be used or, or be thought of for moving the educational bureaucracy more back in the uh, more creative direction? Well, I certainly, and uh, it, it seems almost as though the um, education system in the 21st century sort of moving back into the what business went through in the 20th and sort of getting more into a, a sort of a mechanistic machine driven model of uh, of how the world works rather than uh, inspiring creativity and enthusiasm and so uh, more with me um, and, and find stories that can inspire uh, educators to realize that that really is the past and that there's a whole different world opening up in front of us. And then, unless we inspire uh, our students with the love of learning and with an enthusiasm and a spark and a drive and an energy, I mean, it doesn't matter whether they pass those tests or not. I mean, it's, uh, the education is not going anywhere. And, and it's, it's going to be stories. It's going to be enthusiasm. And, uh, so I haven't done a great deal of work with education systems, but it's certainly something I'd like to do more and hope I get invitations from education groups and uh, work with them and show them how we can use this most wonderful technology to achieve those goals. All right, let's go over to Tom. You got a comment or a question? Yeah. Yeah. 
I just wanted to to say uh, prior about the positive element, and sometimes it can be applied. I have a saying that says two positive, or, or excuse me, two two rights don't make a wrong; they multiply. And if your audience, or if you're doing a training of what business professionals, healthcare, or educators, if they're open and receptive to solutions, they they're already then give it to them with a positive note. But um, I want to reinforce uh, what our moderator was saying. I was trying to get information to the, uh, it was a large health con peoples, and I was frustrated. I had not made the right connection, and the conference was approaching, and I was just, had given up on it. And I was on the airplane flying down to Portland, Oregon, from Edmonton, Alberta, and the person sitting next to me, turns out, I had no idea, was on the way to that conference, was on the main main committee for presenting solutions, parity, et cetera. And I did just, just what uh, the gentleman has, had shared. I, I, I shared my frustration, the negative. I said, there are solutions to these problems, and they're, 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 they're synergistic solutions, and I, I'm, I'm just frustrated that, and then, and so I started sharing this, just pouring out with this, this person, and she looks at me in, in silence, and then she created the positive opening for being receptive, wanting to know, she told me who she was, and she said she was on her way, I was in a state of shock, she was on her way to that conference to meet with the committee. <laughs> and so, just what he had shared about the negative, Frustration, occasion, interaction, very upbeat, very uplifting. And then the neutral was, she, she says, do you have the schematic? Do you have the prototype? And I said, yeah, I happen to have it just, I happen to have it by fate in my briefcase. And I gave it to her. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the quick story of, 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 of uh, getting things moving with the negative, running into the positive, with the transmutual exchange, you know, that went on. And then, of course, going into the neutral, neutral pattern. Um, so, yeah, I, I think everything has a cycle and a rhythm and a pattern, and if we can gain insight into that, there's a synthesis uh, in, this, in, this, in this art form and story. Uh, it can find it seemingly impossible. Uh, things can happen. Yeah, well, I mean, there you go. <laughs> it's, uh, that's, that's it. This, this pattern, which has been uh, staring us in the face for all these millennia, I mean, we're deciphering it. We're decoding it. And once once you understand the code, once you understand that underlying pattern, then uh, communication becomes a lot easier. It becomes a lot simpler because you know what you're looking for and you're finding things that fit within the pattern. And you find, as Larry did, hey, this Tom did, it connects, it engages, it compels. Yeah. So do you have an offer for the audience tonight or for future listeners? We offer. Um, it's actually... 38, uh, 38 bonus tools, 38 bonus tools for leadership and uh, and uh, storytelling and the relationship between them. And some of them are from me, some of them from my colleagues who've joined together and uh, uh, wanting to help launch uh, the secret language of leadership. And you can get this uh, offer at a uh, website, uh, which I'll give you the URL in just a second. It's quite a mouthful, so I'll go slowly over it. Um, it's uh, my website, www.stevedenning.com, forward slash launch gifts HTML. That's L A U N C H G I F T S dot HTML. www.stevedenning.com forward slash 
launchgifts.html. And, and I'll have a and, direct link on the on the blog posting on the storytellingwithchildren.com uh, blog. Okay. And uh, uh, I hope you enjoy those. There are a lot of rich uh, uh, gifts and tools and uh, ways in which to use leadership and storytelling to change the world. And I just want to mean this isn't up right now, but it should be up within the next three weeks, a month. Um, if you go to storytellingwithchildren.com back, uh, forward slash podcast at that time in about three weeks or a month, I'll be having a free e-course on how to use podcasting in your art, in your arts to basically as a storyteller or as an artist or as a performing artist, whatever your whatever it is, um, you can use podcasting, and it's it's an e-course designed for art-centered organizations. Um, any last words, Steve, as we go out for the national storytelling movement? Well, I. I'm uh, delighted that you've joined me tonight, and um, as I say, this, this has really come into its own in the last, even the last month or two. It's uh, you can see in these um, book competitions that it's storytelling books that have um, come to the fore. You can see in Harvard Business Review, you can see in big organizations that the world is, is has come to realize that narrative storytelling is a huge part of this, and so I hope that you'll join me in making this happen. Uh, and turning ordinary people into extraordinary and changing the world. And I think I want to remind uh, my listeners that we have fallen into a myth ourselves. We have fallen into a myth that we as storytellers are old-fashioned. We have fallen into a myth and that we have to somehow break out of the story, a story that tells us that, um, that what we do isn't needed in the world and doesn't work. Because one of the things that Steve is telling us here tonight is that storytelling is one of those skills that can help you to be successful in the business world and in the corporate world. I mean, who would even think of that? And so when we go to a school and we do a workshop, we're not just teaching them to be better communicators. We're teaching them to be really amazing business people. And and we have to include that in how we sell ourselves and how we approach the world and how we approach schools and how we go out in the world and what we do. And sometimes I feel like we get caught up in this mythology that as storytellers, um, what we're to examine that story and break out of it. Uh, so with that, I want to thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank you, Steve, for coming on the show. Thanks, Eric. And um, I look forward to the next call uh, for those who are on the line right now. The next call will be on January, Sunday the 27th, I think is what it is, with Priscilla Howe. She's going to be talking about how to make a living as a storyteller. She makes over $30,000 a year performing in schools. Anyway, uh, till then, I'll see you later. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. 
That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening. As my granddad told